Thanks very much. First, I have to apologize, but at the same time, I am like hope. I hope most of you glad that things are happening. No, I really think that I'm very glad that I am forced to correct my standard analysis, which is, you know, that with the disappearance of any serious left in European countries, the only political opposition of any weight is the one between like uh, liberal multiculturalism, pure capitalism, and right-wing anti-immigrants. Now, from Greece to England, France, and also other places where media are under-reporting it. I don't know if he is here. He will be these days my friend from Croatia, Srećko Horvat. He told me, for example, that you know, in Croatia, it's crazy. There are almost daily massive demonstrations against the government. I mean, it's not yet the Greek situation, but entering that stage slowly of kind of a symbolic dilatimization of the whole state machinery. And it's incredible how underreported it is in the Western media. You would never have known that that's happening, that it's happening also in other countries. Uh, so again, I hope this compromise is okay for you, because on the one hand, I know I have an obligation and so on. It's like, almost like what here in the UK, your, as he called, Minister for Universities would have proposed, you know, the rule for humanities. It's a private deal between me and you as citizens not to be here. So we have to keep to that. On the other hand, I'm glad that I'm here and that, you know, I always make this boring reflection of using the term between the two deaths and so on. Well, if I got it correctly, we are now here between the two strikes, no? <laughs> Yesterday and tomorrow. And it's a very nice title because I think that this is our position now. Time to reflect. Why? I noticed how in some political circles of the radical left, it appears fashionable to make a gentle stab, not so much against me as against Alain Badiou, like to cut it short and to simplify it. Yeah, yeah, it's very good, the idea of communism, but what about doing something, no? Well, the more this event will unfold, Pro different form of protests and so on and so on, the more not you, but we all will discover, I say we all because I don't want to patronize you, that, uh, you know, then you do a movement and then what then? And then you will see you need thinking theory more than ever to know what to do. Because it's easy to do Easy, okay, at some theoretical level. What you do now against cut, cuts in spending for education, healthcare, and so on, and so on. But you know then, the more things develop, the more then you confront the serious issue. What now? What do we really want? And here, Fukuyama's question will again, I claim, return with a vengeance. Do we want only a little bit more efficient just, tolerant, multicultural state, but still within the Fukuyama frames? Or should we be 
at least as radical as Fukuyama himself, my God, who the last time I met him considered to me that the dream is over. So the tragedy now is that we all make fun of Fukuyama, but in practice we are more Fukuyamaist than the guy himself, who knows, admits that it's over. So again, don't underestimate this. I mean, I don't want to boast these conversations with Vice President Bolivia, Linera, but I sincerely, no, I will not bore you with, he's my type of a guy. Like, we immediately started to exchange jokes which are so dirty that even I was slightly shocked. But nonetheless, uh, to, to put it seriously, he, he gave me a very nice anti-Badiou in the sense of against this Badiou's notion of the state is not authentic, subtract argumentation. He told me that what would this have meant in Bolivian situation? Basically to leave all the power to the existing elite, which is the only one which is able to rule. And nonetheless, when there was a chance, they decided to do the impossible. They are well aware of all this stuff, state, inauthentic, and so on and so on. But they said, we, we see, there is no way out. If you have a chance, grab the state power and leave the impossible. That is to say, try to make the state functioning against itself and do something. And I think it's worth taking this wager. Uh, so, but at the same time, again, in order not to lose orientation, we need, I claim, especially today, theory more than ever. Because again, I ask you, I'm asking all of us, what if I ask you a simple question? When on Saturday we will all go, maybe not all, I don't know, uh, to the big march, but if I ask you simply, what do you really want there? Now you will say, we know what we want, uh, this. Uh, no budget cuts, and so on and so on. But you know that it's not as simple as that, that the true question is not this. The true question is, where do you see the... Because if you really want only that, then it means you really want just a small change within the existing order. But the situation gets really tough when the price for a small change is a large change. You know, when you cannot achieve small gains without asking for more. So again, I claim more than ever, we need theory. We need a general overview to know what we want, where we are moving. This doesn't mean that I'm in any way skeptical uh, against what is happening now in the UK. On the contrary, I fully support it for a very specific reason. Because when I say we need theory, I don't mean it in the way that, uh, you know, we theorists know the general overview and will be able to guide you, ordinary participants. No, on the contrary, we also don't know exactly what to do. And it's only through participating in the movement that we can learn. There is an additional reason for which I totally support this kind of movements. Uh, because it's not just a question of budget cuts and so on. It's nonetheless a question of what, in one of my last performances here, I called the problem of, in Marxian terms, general intellect or 
intellectual property or however you call it. I think that one very important aspect of the forthcoming crisis of capitalism is that it cannot really deal with what is usually referred to as intellectual property. I think that uh, this is the problem that young people who demonstrate students from Greece through France to England are well aware of, that simply there is no place for them. I mean, they are educated, but they know in advance that for a large majority of them, there is no place for them. I mean, finding work and so on and so on. Now, of course, what I claim is that we should reject the realist argument, which is, of course, there is no place for them because they were educated for useless, abstract, free-floating stuff. We need to, we need to reorganize education for our, for our market demands and so on and so on. But I claim that here, the left should be very clear in the strategy of this protest and mobilize, maybe will not disagree with me here, mobilize everyone, including maybe some honest right-wingers, telling them, you really care for uh, whatever you call them, Judeo-Christian, European values. The true victim of these reforms is ultimately precisely what is worth fighting for in European tradition. So I don't, I think that we should shamelessly adopt this attitude and tell them, like when David Cameron said we need robust uh, uh, liberalism against multiculturalism, again flirting with, uh, with, uh, with uh, European legacy. But our answer to him should be not just this, no, no, others are also important, but who are you to talk about European legacy? Not, not the, the, the Muslim immigrant workers here. You are the true murderer of, I mean, the best thing he can do for European legacy is, to put it in my plastic terms so that you will understand me, to go into the toilet bowl and, uh, bowl and, and, and flush the water. No? no, I quite really mean it. You cannot imagine, I, I, here I'm a pessimist, if other countries are much more dynamic and intelligent here, go to China, go to Singapore, even go to United States, they don't play with this. Uh, so uh, what's my point here? Uh, you know this old boring Marxist dialectics of productive forces and relations of production. I'm talking about it in the most vulgar possible sense, almost Stalinist evolutionary sense, like when the productive forces develop to a certain degree, they cannot any longer be contained by the existing uh, relations of production. I know, I've written about it, what is the greatest irony of the disintegration of communist regimes in 1890, that the best, are the best explication of that demise was precisely this, the most vulgar Marxist dialectics. It is quite obvious that state socialism worked for the standard industrial phase of development, quick industrialization and so on. The moment you approach, whatever we call it, we don't have a good term, digitalized society, postmodern society, it simply didn't work, which is clear in countries like even today, North Korea. If you want pure state socialism, you simply have to prohibit the access to it. 
But I claim now world capitalism is approaching the same problems. I think that so-called intellectual property in all its aspects is it's becoming clear more and more in conflict with the form of capitalism. It is because it is, if you permit me this rather naive notion, it's in its very notion, so-called intellectual property, intellectual products, communist. And I think that this is the big struggle, one of the big struggles going on today. For example, you probably read about the latest tendency in uh, the organization of cyberspace, the so-called move towards what they call clouds. That is to say, remember, even five years ago, our computers were big boxes at home. The bigger the box, all the better for you, because you could then download whatever you want. Now, the tendency is the opposite one. Not even PCs are needed. The idea is they are dying. The more and more it's enough, like some maybe iPad or even smaller iPhone, but, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, all the work is done out there in a so-called cloud, big company computer network from where you download or whatever. All the data software programs are out there. Now, this may sound nice. It makes you as an individual incredibly more uh, dynamic in the sense of easy access to whatever you want and so on and so on. The problem is, however, and here again we are back to Marx, his notion of general intellect. No? Clouds is, I claim, a digital name for what Marx calls, called general intellect. All the knowledge, software programs and so on, they are out there. Fine, it sounds very communist in a primitive way, like our commons are out there. The problem is, of course, who owns them? And I think this is the crucial fight today. It goes on silently. Many people are not even aware of it, but as I think I already mentioned, for example, are you aware that iTunes or whatever, that Apple bullshit company which controls iPads and so on, they just made two months ago, I think, an exclusive deal with Rupert Murdoch, that Rupert Murdoch will be the exclusive provider of news. To them. So we, again, we have the same contradiction. The more our space is getting communal in the sense of, you know, it's no longer your big box at home, but when you are in the World Wide Web, you participate in a common intellect. The greater the danger that this common intellect itself is privatized, silently censored, and so on, and so on. Which is why I couldn't but laugh when I read recently, literally yesterday or two days ago, how in China they even stepped up censorship recently. For example, they automatically, on phone conversations, automatically detect problematic words, and the moment the computer identifies a problematic word, uh, the line is cut. You are cut off. And the way I read it in the newspapers, a wonderful thing happened when basically a lover was telling to his mistress something poetic, like uh, quoting some Shakespeare where 
the line goes on, oh, if you love a lady, seduce her, she will not protest too much. Ah, the noted <laughs> protest, he was cut off. <laughs> he was cut off. No, uh, it's easy to laugh at the Chinese for us, but, you know, are we aware that with clouds, we are close to doing exactly the same? We shouldn't laugh too much at the, at the Chinese, no? <laughs> Although, uh, I think that China is nonetheless a wonderful example of crazy ideological trends today, because are you aware what is going on now there with this latest Dalai Lama conflict? Dalai Lama, a religious guy, said, no, I want to step down, I want elections where Tibetan people will choose their leader. You know what was the reply of the communist Chinese state? No, this is cheating. Dalai Lama must be reincarnated, and so on. I love it. This is where we are today. It happens. No? Okay, but let's go on uh, uh, more uh, seriously. What this, all this, <coughs> sorry, what all this brings us to is uh, the awareness at multiple levels. You know, this is what I would like to, in a naive way, to bring upon you. Again, my old joke, I repeated it many times, you know, that exchange of telegrams between Austrian and German headquarters, Germans in World War I, Germans to Austrians, here the situation is serious but not catastrophic, Austrians to Germans, with us the situation is catastrophic but not serious. That this is our predicament today, I claim. We all know the situation is catastrophic, but we are still not ready to take it seriously. And this gap can only be sustained by a material force of ideology. And which is why the first thing to learn here is the material force of ideology. For example, I was, uh, I was uh, informed by my British friends, pure, pure blood Englishmen like Costas, <laughs> no, no, seriously, that, uh, for example, these budget cuts and so on in education, no? I mean, you know what's the basic trick? You should bear it in mind that if you read, that's how I hope I'm resuming you correctly, course, that you look at all the numbers closely, you would have seen that it's not really about economy and money that at least in the next 10, 15 years, there will, be no, uh, uh, there will be no real cuts in the sense of state spending. It's a pure, basically, it's not a question of spending less money. It's a question of purely ideological operation of changing the very coordinates of what education means on, uh, on privatizing education, of redefining what is public concern, what's not. This seems to me so important that uh, you concede too much to so-called neoliberalism when you take it as reality. No, neoliberalism is ideology. States which proclaim themselves to be neoliberal are not really doing that. They are spending more and more money and so on. I mean, like, United States neoliberal state, don't, don't joke. I mean, under Bush, the state exploded like crazy and so on and so on. States are getting stronger and stronger. It's always, it's so important, I think, when you attack the enemy, not to take the enemy at his words in the sense of taking his self 
definition seriously. They are not doing that. When they talk about free trade, they cheat like crazy and so on and so on. This is absolutely important. And again, especially here, for example, again, in these cuts, it's a rearrangement of the entire ideological space of the distinction between private, public, and so on and so on. It's not about, about economy. It's not about spending less. It will probably cost even more. In the, in the same way, I claim, it, in all domains, we should be aware of how ideology pervades all our space. For example, I cannot resist telling you what happened to me in Qatar, where I was, I shamelessly admit, I spent the new year the last days of December there. I was invited by a Museum of Islamic Art to blah, blah. And then uh, they were very kind towards me there. I mean, the people at museum. I didn't have, of course, any state contacts. But what I liked is that I engaged in interesting conversation with these people who were kind to explain me some Marxist facts of life. No, Qatar is per capita even richer than Dubai and Abu Dhabi. So of course, I asked immediately the question, uh, who does the work, the dirty work? I was informed there are, of course, immigrant workers with absolutely no rights from countries like Philippines, Indonesia, Nepal, and so on. And the lowest, I was told, are not Philippines or Indonesians, but Nepal workers. I was told that they are the ones who are building this high-rise building. Why they? My idea was they think Nepal, uh, that uh, Nepal, you know, the mountains there are high, so perhaps they know how to climb or what, I don't know. But, uh, okay, then I ask concrete questions. Where do they live? Can I visit them? No, they live in an industrial city outside the town, which looks more like a prison, you cannot enter it. And I was told many of their houses are without air condition. Summer temperature, the last summer for a week, it was 57 Celsius, no? Uh, what's their salary, I asked. Uh, a little bit over $200 per month. From this, you deduce uh, food expenses. Uh, they, uh, their passports are taken. They cannot leave for four years. So it's like, if not slavery, at least serfdom. But now comes multiculturalism, which is why I hate it. I asked them, I asked a totally naive question on purpose. How is it that I don't see them around? Ah, they told me. Uh, they work all the days, they're free only on Friday, because, you know, Friday is Muslim uh, Sunday, no? And then the government had a problem. Officially, they should be free. But how to prevent them on Friday invading all those beautiful shopping malls, these dirty immigrant workers, no? They found the solution. Nothing to do, of course, superficially, with censorship or class, no? Uh, Sheikh, their Sheikh of Qatar had a deep discovery that, look, look what he discovered, that family is in crisis today in our corrupted world. So they proclaimed Friday a family day. And to boost this, they claimed that on Fridays, only adults with parents or women can enter shops and shopping malls. Apparently, it has nothing to do with Class, not just uh, 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 but everybody knows. The all foreign workers, it's strictly prohibited to bring their families with them. So it's a wonderful way to 
pass a law which apparently has nothing to do with them, but de facto they are uh, prohibited. Uh, this brings me to, okay, a brief comment. I've written in it, they were stupid enough in The Guardian to publish it about <laughs> uh, Egypt and so on. But nonetheless, I would like to do it and so on. But nonetheless, I would like to do a short comment here. Namely, Qatar being part of that network, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and so on and so on. I think it's crucial that this dynamics expands there. Because you know what is the true news of me, for me, of the last weeks? Why is Libya so popular? I mean, in the sense of top news uh, war. Because Libya is a case of renormalization of the crisis. Egypt and so on, it was anxiety. No, in the sense of what does this mean? Like, uh, we have to support them, but at the same time we are allies of Mubarak. Can we trust them? We were a little bit perplexed. But this perplexion was, this is the joke I didn't even propose to Guardian. You know, the shock of the crisis in Egypt especially, this is why it was so beautiful, was that... Uh, the bad news was that we got exactly what we wanted. We were all the time telling most of us to Arab crowds, unfortunately, this is the hypocrisy of Western liberals. Unfortunately, the only way to mobilize Arab crowds is through some uh, anti-Semitic nationalism or Muslim fundamentalism. Now we got exactly what we secretly supposed they are not able to do purely secular, popular, democratic movement, and so on. And our reaction was an incredible anxiety and shock. You know, this is the part which I didn't dare to propose to Guardian. This reminds me of a film. Did you see? It's not a great film. But there is one nice scene. Uh, 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 Francois Truffaut, Day for Night, uh, American... What is Le Nuit American, American Night, that movie, you know, with, with, with uh, Jacqueline Bisset and so on, where, okay, I'm talking about two marginal persons who, okay, the guy wants to screw the girl, I don't know, a camera and a secretary. So all the time he's telling her, oh my God, please, why don't we do it, blah, blah, blah. So, okay, they have to take a car, the car breaks down, they have to wait for help close to a certain lake, and then the guy again starts, please, it's just quickly, let's do it here. And the girl... You know what she does? She stands up and starts to unbutton her trousers and says, okay, let's do it now. And of course, the guy is totally, oh my God, how do you mean it? Just simply like that and so on, you know. This was, you know, Egypt was unbuttoning and this was our relation, no? Like, but how can you do, my God, simply secular democracy, right? Where are all our worries? Or you shouldn't be able to do this, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but now I come to my point. Uh, Libya is a renormalization. There we know who is the bad guy, the terrorist, and so on. That's why we were so glad uh, uh, Tunis, and especially Egypt, unsettled the coordinates in Libya. We can make, we can at least act as if the coordinates are reasserted. We are fighting one of, okay, he wasn't part of the original axis of evil, but you know, dialectics of life, axis of evil is changing and so on. No? And so uh, you can feel the, the, the relief, no, in the Western media, like now again we can, uh, but I, the proof is the following one. Do you know that 
there is a country where there was unrest and a foreign, where there were big demonstrations which almost toppled the government and a foreign power there intervened brutally with the army not to support, not to bring democracy, but to support the ruler, dictator. And the Western media were silent, marginal news. For me, true news is not Libya. The true news is Bahrain. Did you read the newspapers? A week ago, the Saudi army intervened there. Where is here the outcry? It was this, be news, like, it was at the level of like Slavoj Žižek was over, overrun by a can by a car in, in whatever <laughs> would be the night. You know, this, here, here you see the situation. I mean, this is why I think it would have been so important to, to that this movement should spread also in these bastions like Saudi Arabia, uh, the Emirates and so on and so on. Let's hope. Uh, then, last thing, this, of course, earthquake, Japan. There, I think, also, we can get lessons. The first lesson is that, uh, nonetheless, you know, we should stop with this simple anthropocentric attitude of we are guilty for everything. Here, this brought me also in trouble in Bolivia because unfortunately there, President Morales did write an appeal to the world, to world leaders, leaders about two years ago, where I think he accepted a little bit too quickly this standard New Age topic of, you know, from 17th century, humanity is, capitalism is killing Mother Earth and so on. And uh, I think that uh, if anything, Japan demonstrates that, yes, we are killing Mother Earth, but Mother Earth is a dirty bitch who doesn't care about us, you know. That's the first. Uh, the second thing, I think that Japan makes it clear now. What I was already speaking about once, namely that, uh, my God, imagine, you don't even have to imagine, it's happening in Japan. If the catastrophe will, let's hope not, develop further, but it's even, maybe it even will, because the latest news this morning I read is that uh, they are already advising, officially, not just rumors, officially, the Japanese government, children and old people in Tokyo not to drink water, public. So they already admit that water in Tokyo is contaminated. What I'm saying is that we were even lucky in Japan, and this is what should make us worry, because uh, you know, apropos Haiti, it was easy to say, oh, underdeveloped country, blah, blah, blah. But here we got a catastrophe in a country which should have been at the top with regard to how prepared they were. They knew they confront this kind of a threat. They are one of the richest countries in the world and so on and so on. And nonetheless, what happens is going on. So I think that the lesson of Japan is among others is that effectively and i think it's not only ecological catastrophes it's also possible social catastrophes hungers and so on and so on we need new forms of international solidarity to put it very simply it's quite possible that new situations will emerge for example what if 
the northern part of Japan becomes, how do you call it, unlivable for 50, 400 years. And I, I always distrusted this racist argumentation. We have too many people, we have to invade foreign countries. But in this case, you know, maybe there would even have been some truth in it. It's difficult to squeeze all the Japanese in the southern part. So who will take them? How? And so on. And I think there will be many situations like this. Like, what if the drop and desertification of sub-Saharan Africa goes on? And so on and so on. Who, who will be doing this? How? I mean, we will definitely need forms of international solidarity and cooperation, which uh, would, uh, like, the best formula I got is from my friend, uh, my friend with whom I had many polemics, but I appreciate him very much. I even stole the title from him, Parallax View, Kojin Karatani, who wrote a text, which, of course, he told me they, asked, told me they asked him at New York Times for a text. He sent the text. Apropos Japan, of course, they didn't publish it. <laughs> it was a little bit too radical, but... Uh, he put it very nicely that uh, in ecology, we should stop with this bluff of what he calls lifestyle ecologism, you know. Rich guy explaining to you how even when I sheet, everything is recycled and so on and so on. That's not a topic. That's totally a false approach, totally mystifying. If anything, maybe I'm repeating myself, I'm sorry, but if anything, I like what... A, a, a German ecologist told me recently that from ecological standpoint, the best thing we can do is that as many as possible of us humans, that we live in congested megalopolises, dirty capitals. Why? Because, you know, per capita, the pollution gets much, much lower like this. We pollute just a tiny piece where we live in shit, all of us, but basically this Japan was doing this till now, and I think they were doing right things. You know that you have a totally wrong idea of Japan if you think all those tiny yellow ants, Japanese friends, crawling... Call. No, no, no. I think that basically Japan's strategy was 30 to 70 percent. 30 percent is like this. Uh, Tokyo, Osaka area, but more or less, 70% is kept, you know, forests, mountains, just villages, and so on and so on. I think it's the true catastrophe for us would have been if the majority of us were to be able to, 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 uh, to live in those self-sustainable, ecological, individual houses, no? Okay, so solidarity, you know, because here things are very sad, namely, where is solidarity today. What do I want to say? I read recently a book on North Korea, critical but honest one. And my God, a lesson I got there was a sad one. No, not that I had any sympathies for Kim Jong-il, although he is a clean guy in the literal sense. You know what? When I was in China, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, a friend, the friend is Wang Kui, the philosopher, showed me a photocopy, okay, I have to trust him, he wasn't lying, on, of a North Korean uh, ele elementary school textbook, where they explain, teaching young children, that their leader is so clean that he doesn't need to shit and urinate. <laughs> uh, happy people. Okay, but what I want to say is that in this other book, uh, uh, it describes through interviewing, it's a very honest book, it doesn't do the standard dissidents or whatever, but it just 
nicely describes the famine of which started early 1990s, I think 92 in North Korea, how it affected everyday people in small towns. Because it was very simple. Uh, state machinery simply stopped providing things. Like, you got salary, there was nothing to buy or whatever. It stopped functioning. So here is the sad thing. The result was not what you may have thought, like people developing self-organized solidarity networks, but it was extremely brutal, egotist, survivalist individualism, tolerated by the state. Otherwise, half of them would have dropped that, you know? Like some kind of half legal, by this I mean formally illegal, but de facto tolerated, markets emerged where people did whatever they could to sell whatever. You went to the forest, cut grass, grass, try to bake some kind of whatever. But the point is, again, that the reaction to this extreme crisis, people dying, allegedly around 10% of the people died in North Korea, by reacted not by solidarity, but by extreme kind of a wild, wild zero-level capitalist survivalism. And I think if you ask me, this is the saddest thing about so-called really existing Stalinist and so on regimes. It's totally wrong to see in them simply some kind of excess of collectivization. You know, the stupidities that you read like, oh, people are there like puppets, all the same and so on. No, the sad thing is that uh, what these regimes the worse they were, the more they produced it. What these regimes effectively produced was extremely brutal survivalist individualism, egotism. And remembering, at least, back from this book on North Korea, what I read about Stalinism, what I experienced in my youth in my country, even if it was not real communist terror, I can say that even there, the same was true. For example, reading different memoirs of Soviet Union, if you read it closely, you see that again, in Stalinism, beneath this surface of all obeying the party line, the facto lies were those of an extreme individualism, extreme lack of solidarity. This is, again, uh, the saddest thing. Okay, so, after, ah, speaking about Korea, China, and so on, if you allow me, before we go, nonetheless, into more of a theory, one remark. A friend of mine drew my attention to the fact that some guys attack me on the web as uh, accepting too much anti-communist propaganda and so on and so on. There are a couple of points where I am attacked about Cuba, that I'm unfair towards the suffering because of American imperialism, blah, blah, and then China. The idea is... Even my friend Badiou, if you read his book on the idea of communism, I think it's there, not on the idea, the communist hypothesis. Isn't there at the end a short text of polemics against my Mao text? No? Okay. I partly, in a humble Stalinist, self-critical way, concede the point that I am quoting there, that very anti-communist book by Chang and Holiday about Mao. 
but I still defend my position. I did my homework, I repeat it. What do I mean by this? Listen, uh, first, I quote that book not trusting the judgments, but I quote that book only for two, three specific data. First fact, in the great leap forward, at least around 35 million of people died. B, this wasn't an, a death which was unpredictable in chaos, but they, they in the Politburo, they knew it and they consciously took it into account. I'm sorry to tell you, by I did my homework. I mean, when I was in China two times after that, I spoke with many academics, not anti-communist dissidents, or at least not only, but uh, mostly people even close to the party line and in private, they all more than confirmed this. Many, uh, uh, I, uh, I will not write it, but wait a minute. Okay. okay. And they told me where to look at. Okay, okay, this was a joke. I cannot read uh, Chinese, but the book to read, they told me, is Yang Yi Sheng, J I S H E N G, Yang Yi Sheng. I'm not sure, probably. No, I'm not sure. I am sure that I'm pronouncing it wrongly. <laughs> uh, the title's book is Mu Bei, which means Tombstone, the subtitle. An Account of Chinese Famine in the 1960s, published by Cosmos Books in Hong Kong, 2008. Why is this book unique? Because it's uh, uh, not simply a Western propaganda book. The guy, this young and so on, was a senior Xinhua Chinese state agency uh, uh, journalist. He was, uh, he even now lives in China uh, under the pretext of exploring the agricultural policy in the building of socialism in China. He was allowed to circulate China with free access because he was member of the official journalist body in all provinces for 18 years, looking through all the statistics and it was incredible. He was in an ideal position, again. He gained access. He was allowed to go everywhere, all the local, local statistic bureaus and so on, in all the provinces, and which is why the book has one, uh, 1,200 pages with an incredible amount of statistics and so on. And, uh, and uh, well, sorry to tell you, it's all there. His number is 38 millions. And now we come to the crucial thing. What happened with this book? Of course, it wasn't allowed to be published in China. But the Chinese government did everything in its power, to put it ironically, to silently admit that it's true. For example, nothing happens to the author. He lives now in Beijing. He's still allowed to give talks and so on and so on. Just you shouldn't mention the book. But everybody read the book, they're all smuggling it. It's, you know, it's a kind of an obscene secret. And even when the book was attacked, typically, my Chinese friends drew my attention to it. Nobody said the book contains lies. A typical attack is like this. I quote it. The book is 
obscene, pornographic, violent and unhealthy for young children. <laughs> Did you notice that they don't say there are lies there or whatever? It's simply a... I mean, basically, it's, you know, this typical state secret logic. We all know this is true, but it's not patriotic to talk, talk about that. And again, don't you think that, because this is an extra traumatic topic, if the guy were to be really suspected of, I don't know, cheating, being a CIA agent, he wouldn't be there still invited to official colloquiums and so on and so on. So note the irony. His number is two millions higher than the one I quote. So I almost was tempted to reply to, but you, sorry, Alain, to publish that number. Now I'm raising the number. <laughs> uh, then some people try to criticize these accounts of hunger, like Utsa Patnai, professor of economics in New Delhi, claiming that in India, even more people are dying, but it's simply not reported enough. With this, frankly, I totally agree. And here I agree with my friend, maybe friend, Udi Aloni, who did a young, a nice movie documentary on Kashmir and so on. Namely, the problem of India, I love the people there, but not the ruling elite and especially not their multicultural <laughs> cultural critics or whatever, which are all Brahmin. I noticed so that then, when you mention to them what about castes, untouchables, they tell you, oh, and equality, if you mention equality, they tell you, don't impose on us these imperialist notions, and so on, and so on, no? Literally, this, so, okay, so what I want to say is that this is true, yes. I mean, India is, in a way, with respect to human rights, at least for lower class, ordinary people, worse than China. Again, an example which I already evoked here, you saw that shitty movie, uh, 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 Slumdog Millionaire. I asked my Indian friends, like, is it true? You know, I nonetheless think the movie is not totally bad, but at the beginning, you remember, that young guy only being uh, suspected of cheating at a show is taken to the police and tortured with electricity and so on. And I asked my friends, like, as a naive liberal, is this uh, uh, exaggeration? No, they told me everybody knows this. I mean, in India, Everyone, small thieves, is more or less automatically tortured. It's absolute common practice. And they told me that, uh, so they told me that among the poor in India, they have a wonderful, ironic joke. Their address to the police is, please treat us at least like the Chinese treat Tibetans in Tibet. <laughs> that is, that's to say, their point is that in Tibet, at least you are tortured Mostly if you are, for political reasons, you know, if you are suspected of links with Dalai Lama, protesting, but not if you are a petty thief. In India, everyone is tortured. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine how, again, it's like those unrest in Croatia, how biased our media are. The official story is India, the biggest democracy against the bad totalitarian China. But my God, do you know that they have now an ongoing Naxalite, Maoist uprising with almost one million, minimum 600,000 uh, rebels, and it's totally downplayed. Only from time to time you hear about blah, blah, blah. And again, what Udi Aloni has shown in his movie in Kashmir, did you ever read in our media 
of the tremendous political event going on in Kashmir, that the anti-Indian resistance publicly renounced arms and opted for the peaceful way. No, India still treats them as a terrorist and our media take over that line. So again, I, I, I'm not saying focus all the evil on China. I'm just saying, uh, ah, another thing, a wonderful link between ideology and practice. Uh, you know, uh, what were the causes of this disaster? Yeah. One was that, okay, there was a little bit of shortage of, a little bit of drought. But basically, the harvest was very good in those years of hunger. The first reason was that, as I already wrote, that uh, simply Mao wanted arms from Russia. And he said, let's export uh, food to get arms. The second thing was, was that I love this. Uh, when in Soviet Union, they already abandoned, you know, that crazy Stalinist biologist, Lysenko. In China, they still believed in him. And I love this example. One of Lysenko's theories was that, uh, that uh, species, this was his special Darwinism, kind of a humanist tribal Darwinism, that there is a struggle, but between species, not within a species. As Lysenko said, rabbits eat grass, rabbits don't eat other rabbits, no? Or, Lions eat, or I don't know, foxes eat rabbits, not other foxes. This was his notion of class solidarity or what, no? <laughs> so uh, the Chinese draw from this a totally crazy solution that since animals and the Chinese thought also plants of the same species are basically solidary, they don't fight with each other, they help each other. So their conclusion was we can we can raise the density of how many seeds per square meter you plant, they doubled or tripled it, claiming, you know, no, 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 they will not grab each other's water, they will help each other, and so on, no? And, of course, there was a catastrophe, and so on, and so on, no? No, but, again, you know, uh, what I'm saying here is this. I'm still ambiguous, I'm not condemning Chinese and so on, but, my God, Alain, but you would have killed me for saying this. But if you have a government which allows knowingly 36, okay, let's go down, 35. But you know, this reminds me of, you know, when I got engaged in these debates and somebody tells me the number is lower, no? I tell them, you know, it's like saying, no, Hitler wasn't a bad guy because he didn't kill five million Jews. It's what only four and a half now, so this changes everything. What I'm saying is that, nonetheless, without any prejudices, don't you think that if 35 million people were left to die as part of a politics, that maybe we should just take note of this, no? And not as some Baduians are tempted to do, dismiss it as it's part of the being, of servicing the goods, nothing to do with the event, because not Alain himself, but some Baduians adopted this arrogant attitude in attacking me, telling me, oh, this is the politics of being, numbers, and so on, this is not the event. Okay, maybe, no? Okay, sorry. No, after this long introduction, let's start doing some uh, problematic, maybe, work. Okay.
let me begin with uh, why still the idea of communism. Again, I think that what I try to do is, instead of reading the notion of idea in but you sense, which is for me a little bit too neo-Kantian still, and incidentally, when Badiou defends himself, himself that he is not a neo-Kantian, well, fuck him, he refers to Kant, in, not in a, a communist hypothesis, in a previous text, he says the idea of communism is a kind of Kantian regulative idea. He does it. So, you know. Okay, but let's go on. Uh, I think that one, so for me, to put it in an ironic term, uh, but use, you know, like Kant has critique of pure reason, no? What Alain does is for me a little too much of critique of pure communism, you know, like critique the Rhein communismus, you know? Okay, uh, but I think what would be nice is to replace this Kantian notion of idea with the Hegelian notion of idea. I would prefer to speak about communism in this way. Namely, uh, what Hegel means by idea is precisely not a pure ideal or impotent idea. Idea is, for Hegel, a notion or a cause which has in itself the strength, the power for its actualization. Like that uh, an idea as Hegel puts it, makes itself what it is. This, now, when you say, but this is crazy idealism, no, think about communism as an idea which moves people to fight for communism. This would have been a perfect Hegelian example. Communism is an idea insofar as it mobilizes people for its own actualization. So, I think that this is why it is crucial when precisely one talks about the idea of communism to explore in what sense this idea, as it were, mobilizes the people to fight for it. For me, there is no opposition between pure idea of communism and empirical struggles and so on and so on. Idea is precisely what, what actualizes itself again in so-called uh, real struggles. Uh, 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 next step, a little bit more philosophical. Now we will, for the second hour, start to work a little bit. Uh, uh, incident. No, no. You ruined Greece, Europe, you will not ruin me here. <laughs> sorry, sorry. You know, at least I can tell you this. I'm only childishly, tastelessly aggressive towards my close friends, <laughs> which holds also for Alain Badiou, my God. He is my best friend. And the only way to prove it is to stick the knife into him all the time. No, that's life. <laughs> okay, no, no, but let's go more seriously. This is now Alain Badiou at his best. He tried recently in a text published two years ago in Cardozo Law Review. I don't think it was reprinted here already. Correct me if I'm wrong. A wonderful philosophico-revolutionary text, The Three Negations. I hope it's known to some of you. It's a, of you. It's a wonderful text. He tries to approach at the conceptual level the topic of negation, of course, in the sense of revolutionary transformation. And he does 
this in his best way in a totally abstract conceptual manner. Uh, he deploys three modes of negation with regard to how they relate to Aristotle's two laws. You know, the basic ontologic law principle for Aristotle is the principle of non-contradiction. A and non-A cannot be true at the same time. And the principle of the excluded middle. Now, as Badiou goes on, there are, of course, here four logical possibilities. Both could be valid. You cancel or renounce one or the other, or you cancel violate both. But you begins with dismissing this last fourth possibility, a negation which obeys neither the excluded middle nor the non-contradiction. For, for Badiou, this is something simply inconsistent, equivalent to complete dissolution of all negativity. I will try to prove that he's a little bit too fast here. So Badiou goes on focusing on the three remaining consistent forms, each of them fitting a certain logical framework. First, we have a negation which obeys the two principles. That is to say, obeys both the, uh, uh, both the uh, uh, non-contradiction law and the, ex uh, and the exclusion of the, uh, the excluded middle. This is the classical Aristotelian logic. Then we have negation, which still obeys the principle of contradiction, but it doesn't obey the principle of the excluded middle. This is for Badiou, the intuit intuitionistic logic, Brouet, hating, and so on. And then we have third possibility, negation which obeys the excluded middle, but not the principle of contradiction, a paraconsistent logic, Brazilian school da Costa. Now, let me explain this a little bit. In classical logic, the negation of P excludes not only P itself, but also any other possibility concerning the contents of the proposition P. So if you negate P, you negate P and the only option is P or non-P. In, in intuitionistic logic, the negation of P excludes P itself, but not some other possibilities which are somewhere between P and non-P. So in this sense, intuitionism uh, obeys the principle of contradiction, but not the excluded middle, no? Like, as you will immediately see, but your point is that this is like social democratic revisionism, no? Like, we are workers, there are bourgeoisie. It's still either us or them. The basic opposition is here, but there are some third parties, compromises, blah, blah, blah. The third are not excluded. Then, uh, for, then uh, uh, this is the in, uh, in paraconsistent logic, the negation of P excludes this third space between P and non-P, but not P itself. P is not really suppressed by the negation. 
For example, again, but use example, in the classical ethical-legal domain, someone is guilty or innocent, no space in between. In the intuitionist space, we always have intermediate values, like guilty with attenuating circumstances, innocent because certainly guilty but with insufficient proof, and so on and so on. In the paraconsistent space, not foreign to certain theologies, one can be both at the same time, although there is no third option. My deep awareness of guilt is the only proof I can have of my innocence, for example. But you, you see, here, you see, you see the opposition between position two and three and one. In one, it's either this or that. In two, it's not only this or that, but there are intermediate stages. You are partially guilty, like if I were to kill one, I would be partially guilty because all of you would bear witness that I'm not quite uh, responsible or <laughs> whatever, no? And in the third position, which is for me the most interesting one, is that it's still, like in, like in the first position, only A or non-A. You are guilty or not guilty, no third way, but paradoxically, these two can directly coincide. Like, again, as it is some kind of hardline Protestant theology where, since we are all guilty and sinful, the only innocence is in fully assuming your guilt and so on. So, as expected, Badiou's royal example is here revolution. The communist revolution for Badiou is classical, a radical confrontation with no third option. It's either us or them. The poor worker who before the revolution appears as nothing in the political field becomes the new hero of this field. In the intuitionist space of social democratic reformism, the poor worker appears in the political field, but it is not at all a new hero of the field. The idea is to bring about a compromise, to find a third way, maintain capitalism, but with more social responsibility and so on. In the third case of paraconsistent space, we get a sort of indecidability between event and non-invent. Something happens, but from the point of view of the world, everything is identical. So we have event and event simultaneously, a false invent, a simulacrum, as in the fascist revolution, which denounces plutocratic exploitation, but keeps capitalism. So, but use conclusion, the lesson is that when the world is intuitionistic, a true change must be classical and the false change para-consistent. So again, you got Badius point. Our ordinary reality is intuitionistic. Is this, that, and the third, blah, blah, blah. Then we have two radical, two radical versions. A false change, which pretends to change, but doesn't change where the opposites in this perverted Hegelian way coincide, and the authentic revolution, classical. It's either A or non-A, and we have to win. Sounds nice, but I have some problems, as I always have with my friends. Uh, what if, my first question, what if today's late capitalist world is no longer, in its logic, intuitionistic? Is the postmodern capitalism not more and more a paraconsistent system in which, in a variety of modes, P is non-P? The order is its own transgression, capitalism can thrive under communist rule in China, and so on and so on. Here, classic change no longer works 
because negation gets caught in the game. So the only way out, this will be my solution, is to, is the fourth form option, dismissed by Badiou, but which I think should be given a different reading. My option is that both principles should be negated, the principle of non-contradiction and the principle of excluded uh, middle. The first thing to remember is the radical asymmetry of what we once called the class struggle. I think it's wrong, totally wrong, to inscribe what we still may call proletarian revolution into the uh, classical logic. The aim of the proletariat is not simply to negate, in whatever way, its enemy, the capitalists, but to negate, abolish itself in the same movement as the class. This is why we are dealing here with the third way, not Blair, but uh, <laughs> neither proletarian nor capitalist, which is not excluded, but also with the suspension of the principle of contradiction. It is the proletariat itself which strives to abolish itself, its condition. So what does this mean in the terms of so-called libidinal economy? In a letter to Einstein, as well as in his new introductory lectures to psychoanalysis, Freud proposes a utopian solution for the deadlocks of humanity. He calls it dictatorship of reason. Men should unite themselves and together subordinate and master their irrational unconscious forces and so on and so on. But I think that here we should, instead of rejecting this idea of dictatorship as of reason as a kind of a totalitarian dream, I think we should read it exactly as this kind of a unity of uh, para paraconsistent and intuitionist logic, that is to say, uh, the denial of, of, of uh, that is that the relationship between di dictatorship of reason and passions, libido, is the one of self-negating identity and so on and so on. Okay, but now so to get back to the main point, I think that Badiou's revolution, which moves in the classical space, us against them, goes for the traditional rebellions when reality is intuitionistic. And in a revolutionary situation, this, as they put it, everyday life is intuitionistic in the sense of this confusion, not only extremes, but third ways, and so on and so on. But I claim that, uh, that again, today's reality is no longer intuitionistic. It's paraconsistent in the sense that things more and more, again, function as their opposite. For example, transgression is the norm, and so on and so on. Here, I think the fourth option, dismissed by Badiou, should be reactualized. Let me go on. Now we will work a little bit. Uh, uh, the principle that I would like to mobilize for what I am trying to develop here is that of, I looked into it a little bit and I like it, I think I already maybe even mentioned it here, but now I want to develop it more in more detail. You know that Galileo Galilei in 1633 allegedly said, and yet it moves, after recanting before the Inquisition his theory that the earth moves around the sun. 
Now, uh, I claim that today this phrase is used in a totally misleading way. It is used in a naive empiricist way, as if, yeah, yeah, you may deny it, but in reality, it still goes on. Like, as a naive empiricist assertion of reality, which persists a pur si muove, nonetheless, it moves in spite of our wrong ideas. I claim that, uh, I claim that uh, we should, it would have been much more interesting and appropriate to our situation to read this a pur si muove in a, again, much more intelligent opposite way which is hinted at in Marx's theory of commodity fetishism, where a pur si muove means something can be denounced as untrue, non-existing, and so on, but a pur si muove. It nonetheless functions as ideology. It still moves you. Like, this is today's cynicism. You don't believe in God, but God still moves you. You prove it is demonstrated that something is wrong, but it still functions. This is, I think, a much more interesting version of a pur si, of, uh, of uh, a pur si move. Uh, so, uh, uh, what, where are we to look for the traces of this things move? And which is this thing which moves? I think it's universality. Why? Now come the final two parts, which will be one more problematic than the other. Uh -huh. Now comes the dangerous part. If there are any of those guys here who like to attack me on the web as proto-fascist and uh, European racist, now listen. Uh, I will try to go now into two detailed debates. The first one would be, it's a very respectful one. Recently, I read an interesting book, Is Critique Secular? It's a volume uh, where uh, the event, I think, was organized by Wendy Brown. And then you have texts by Talat Assad, Wendy Brown, Judith Butler, and Saba Mahmoud. A kind of a debate between the Wendy Brown, Judith Butler, school of whatever you call it, whatever I will, would have called them would be denounced as wrong, so I don't. And uh, let's call it the progressive Muslims. Uh, what interests me is the critique of our notion of secular criticism elaborated there by Assad and Mahmoud. Here is their idea. While in Western liberal secular societies, state power protects public freedom and intervenes into the private space, when it suspects, for example, child abuse, such intrusion into domestic space, the breaching of private domains, is disallowed in Islamic law, although conformity in public behavior may be much stricter. This is from, uh, from, uh, from Assad's text. Or a further quote, for the community, what matters is the Muslim subject's social practice including verbal publication, not her internal thoughts, whatever they may be, end of quote. In other words, what matters 
finally is belonging to a particular way of life in which the person does not own himself. Although, as Quran says, quote from 1829, let him who wills have faith and him who wills reject it. End of quote. This right to think whatever one wishes does not include the right to express one's religious or moral beliefs publicly with the intention of converting people to a false commitment. This is why for Muslims it is impossible to remain silent when confronted with blasphemy. Their reaction is so passionate because for them, quote, I quote again, Assad, blasphemy is neither freedom of speech nor the challenge of a new truth, but something that seeks to disrupt a living relationship. This living relationship is then described by Mahmoud through the role of the icon in Orthodox Christianity. Although Islam is iconoclastic, for pious is Muslims, there, I quote now Mahmoud, their embodied practices and virtues provide the substrate through which one comes to acquire a devoted and pious disposition. Such an inhabitation of the model is the result of a labor of love in which one is bound to the authorial figure through a sense of intimacy and desire. It is not due to the compulsion of the law that one emulates the prophet's conduct, therefore, but of the ethical capacities one has developed that incline one to behave in a certain way." End of quote. This self-transcending surrender to a community held together by a complex web of practices which embody the shared living relationship to divinity, the, the very opposite of the Protestant focus on the inner belief of an isolated individual, also accounts for the passionate public protest of the Muslims to blasphemies against Islam. They experience themselves as living a full, meaningful life only as members of their religious community, sharing their rituals and habits, so that an attack on Islam is for them not an intellectual matter of truth, but a direct threat to their very collective form of life. This is the end of how I describe the position. Now comes my evil Eurocentric and so on counterpoint. The problem explodes when members of a religious community experience as blasphemous injury and a danger to their way of life, not a direct attack on their religion, but the very way of life of another community. As, for example, was the case, marginal, I admit it, with attacks on gays and lesbians in Netherlands, Germany, and Denmark. Now I take the Muslims being the bad guys, or I will immediately take the opposite example, as it is the case with those Frenchmen and French women who see a woman covered by burqa as an attack on their French identity. You know, here again, you see, the problem is not only my way of life is injured. Here, I'm totally for the protection of Islam and Christian fundamentalists. The problem for me, it considers both of them, is when you 
experience, not the fact that others are attacking you, but the very fact of a different way of life as an attack on you. As a situation where it is for you impossible to remain silent. As, again, Christians are here the bad guys, as it is from, not even Christians, from some French liberals, they claim when I see a woman covered in burqa, it's impossible for me to remain silent. Uh, as to the relationship between intimate and public freedom, it is true that for the democratic West, freedom is social. It is meaningless only as an inner conviction. It must, it must be socialized. It must include the right not only to state publicly one's position in order to convince or seduce others, but also to act socially on them. This, however, does not mean that with regard to intimate freedom and convictions, Western liberalism advocates probing into private sphere in order to establish a kind of totalitarian thought control. The problem for democratic liberalism is here the problem of seduction. When I am really free and when I think I am acting free while I am effectively being seduced by images and rhetorics. So when Assad deals with the topic of seduction, he contrasts Islam and liberal West. That's Assad's position. The West condemns rape, external violence, and, but the West not only tolerates, it even celebrates seduction, while in Islam, seduction is considered worse. Quote, in liberal society, rape, the subjection of a person's body against his her wish for the purpose of sexual enjoyment is a serious crime. Whereas seduction, the mere manipulation of another person's desire, is not. The first is a violence, the other is not. In liberal societies, seduction is not merely permitted, it is positively valued as a sign of individual freedom. End of quote. Assad follows this description with two further critical remarks about the West. First, he claims that the distinction between coercion and seduction in the game of seduction is not clear-cut, since there is a large area between these two extremes. Second, seduction in liberal societies is a key constituent of commodification. Again, I quote, the individual as consumer and as voter is subjected to a variety of allurements through appeals to greed, vanity, envy, revenge, and so on. What in other circumstances may be identified and condemned as moral failings are here essential to the functioning of a particular kind of economy and polity." End of quote. So, seduction is a mode of manipulation since the seduced person loses its autonomy. Another quote. To seduce is to incite someone to open up his or her innermost self to images, sounds, and words offered by the seducer and to lead the seduced complicitly or unwittingly to an end first conceived by the former." End of quote. So for Assad, this liberal tolerance of seduction 
which de facto subverts the liberal free and autonomous subject, turning him or her into a passive victim of external stimuluses, so that liberal freedom is ultimately the freedom to be seduced and manipulated by others. This tolerance is then contrasted with Islamic theology, in which seduction is a matter of great concern, and not only in the sexual sense. Seduction in all its forms is necessarily dangerous, not only for the individual, because it indicates a loss of self-control, but for the social order too, because it could lead to violence and civil uh, discord. So this is for Assad the horror of the uh, Western system, Western market economy, where the functioning and stability of the system itself are, is sustained by seduction, by something potentially destabilizing. The conclusion is that liberal system is inherently perverse and corrupted, since it has to rely on the very vices it publicly deplores for its normal functioning. Uh, again, my counter-argument here would have been that the topic of seduction, of the seduction by the lure of commodities and seductive political manipulation, far from being foreign to the Western world, is the standard topic of enlightened secular rationalist critique. Uh, for example, precisely what Assad and Mahmoud at, uh, are enumerating as the troubles of seduction, uh, sorry, the dangers of seduction, far to being opposed to Western individualist rationalism is its central part. For example, if you know Descartes, his whole point of, here I admit it, his vulgar anti-feminism is that we men, that women can easily be seduced, not even primarily in sexual sense, but women are more prone to images, to impressions, and so on and so on. And so that the whole Enlightenment elitist theory of freedom is based on this reasoning that, yes, we all have the right to freedom, but only, but freedom can be limited if you are suspected of being too open for seduction. Like, basically, the argument is that primitive people are easily seduced by sensual notions and so on and so on, so no freedom for them. So this would be my first counter-argument, that this whole line of reasoning is absolutely against seduction, is absolutely not foreign to the West. But there is another problem for me here. A Western rationalist would have added religious seduction to the list of seductions. That is to say, are the embodied practices which provide the substrate through which one comes to acquire a devoted, pious disposition, are they also not techniques of seduction? Is the in inhabitation of the model, where one is bound to the authorial figure through a sense of intimacy and so on, not also the result of being seduced. I think this would be, I'm sorry that they are not here. This would be my point of debate with them. Okay, okay, I agree with their critique of seduction. 
But what they, the two of them, describe in such poetic terms as this, participating in a living practice and so on and so on, is this not, does this not fit perfectly the notion of seduction? I claim that the truly radical Christian theologists, from Pascal to Tolstoy, screw Dostoevsky, Tolstoy is my hero. You know, it's very fashionable today to be Dostoevsky and with all this bullshit, am I free or not? God gave me freedom, but the more I'm free, the more I'm guilty, blah, blah. Tolstoy is not an idiot, as he is often painted today. He has a much more radical, terribly pessimistic idea of, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, I think I already developed it once, the idea that, which is very close to Richard Daw Dawkins, Mems, no, that uh, language ideas are like, how do you pronounce this in English, those small shitty organs who can screw you, bacils, uh, Germs are like germs, which control you without knowing. You can do. You don't have a free ego. Your ego is just the battlefield where different germs are fighting. And here comes now uh, Tolstoy's true heroism. He doesn't play this standard Cartesian game of opposing truly free individuality to germs, no? He claimed, no, good ideas function in exactly the same way as bad ideas. They're both germs. The fight between good and evil is the fight between good and bad infection by germs. It's an incredibly radical position. Basically, the same thing is said if you read really them really closely, although they are opposite by Descartes and by, and by Spinoza. You know, Spinoza's notion of imitatio affecti and so on and so on. So uh, now I must admit here absolutely my limitation. I am sure because Islamists are not, Muslims are not idiots. There are wonderful things in their theology. So I don't know enough to pass a general judgment. But I would like to see, and I don't mean this with a liberal hypocrisy where, you know, I'm asking a rhetorical question, but you know, you know, like an anti-Semite saying, Jews, of course, can be honest. I would like to see one, no, like, and it's not, no, no. I, uh, I would nonetheless like to see, this would be a nice, maybe deconstructive move. Would a Muslim theologist be ready to admit this? That is to say, to admit that seduction works also in religion. That it's not a point of opposing seduction and uh, free reason or whatever. No, that seduction is universal. Second thing which bothers me here in this uh, uh, privileging seduction is worse than rape. Of course, there is an abstract truth in it. I mean, you can argue from an extreme moralist position, although I have some ethical doubts, that if you, now you will see immediately where my doubts come, you can say that within a very traditional ethical space that seducing a woman is worse than raping her. Because, you know, uh, by raping her, it's only her body, but she's terrified, which means her soul remains pure. But by seducing her, it's even worse because you destroy not only her body, but also her soul. Okay, okay. But uh, the key question for me is not only the 
seduction, uh, it's not only the question of the seducti seductive force of violence itself and so on and so on. Uh, the, the true problem for me is in this privileging seduction over rape is that it opens up a space for, for me, a dangerous manipulation. That is to say that you, to cut a long story short, when a woman is raped, you know what will be my answer, no? You can put the blame on her by claiming that what appears as rape was in reality her act of seduction. And I'm not inventing her. I know many cases and I know they are not central, they were often manipulated by the Western media. No, where, again, when there was a case of rape, in, I know cases from Iran, even from Australia, and so on, that the blame was put on the woman, claiming that, for example, the very fact that she went out alone in the night where she was raped meant that she was trying to seduce men, that it was a provocation. So, uh, what I'm saying here is that not that we should simply reject this Muslim view. It's much more complicated, of course, but that, uh, but that uh, we should simply be much more radically critical and uh, stop this game, comparative game of, you know, compare our culture to their culture and then try to prove which one is better and so on and so on. But, but to be radically critical towards, uh, towards both of them. Because again, what I tried to do here, I've written enough about Islam, for example, praising its emancipatory potentials and so on and so on. But my result is basically pessimistic here. That is to say it's that uh, we cannot, uh, uh, any, uh, it's that uh, any, any, any taking sides here, any clear religious position, the measure of its greatness is the extent of self-questioning it is able to engage in. This is why horrible thing to say, for example, I'm ready to privilege Christianity a little bit, not because I believe in Christ and so on, come on, be serious, but because, uh, you know, it's nice to have a religion where the God is proclaimed king, but a king who is mocked and uh, hang up together with, two, uh, together, together with two bandits and so on. That is to say that, you know, this would be a uh, my question, not answer, question, because I don't know enough about Islam, to Islamists. How would they, how would they react to this idea that obviously in, in Christianity, uh, the only way for me at least, for example, to read the New Testament is to take Christ as a jokester. I mean, people often accuse me of you never know when I say Hitler was not violent enough, am I joking or not, or whatever. Well, if you think I'm problematic, read Jesus Christ now, and <laughs> you will see. You know what I mean? Like, for example, 
you know the story, which, is us which usually gives an instant multiple orgasm to, to American Southern Baptist capitalists. Maybe you, some of you know it better. It's uh, the story about a master who goes away for some time and gives, yeah, gives some money to two, three servants. And then the first servant said, I manipulated the money. I invested it. You gave me one, whatever, piece of sheet gold. Here you have now five. And he says, okay, okay. Second one, the same, okay. The third one said, I didn't want to put it. I kept it safe for you. And here, I think, Jesus uses that formula. To those who have, it will be taken even that what they have. No, 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 to those who don't have, it will be taken even what they don't have. To, to those who have, it will be given more, and so on and so on. So uh, this ultra-capitalist logic, like it seems that through this fable, Christ is saying, be like active capitalist, you know, put money in... Treat, it's the lesson of there will be blood, the movie, no, like treat religion like money, move it, invest it and bring profit, no, otherwise you lose the faith. Uh, but this is how it is usually read, not in a capitalist way, but nonetheless for an, let's say, active approach. But with great pleasure I learned Okay, through simple internet exploration, <laughs> that there is a school which proves in detail. First, uh, you find the same story not only in, I don't know which one, don't ask me, of the four official gospels, but also in, in, in one of the uh, apocryphal uh, gospels, where it's given a slightly different twist, which hints that uh, the point of Christ is not to celebrate the master, but simply to show how the, the true hero is the third one who didn't want to put it in circulation and in this way exploit the others. That you can read it in a totally opposite way. You know, and this is for me, coming back to the point, the, uh, the greatness of Christianity, this self-mocking idea. For example, in, in, in uh, for example, for, uh, for example, again, uh, uh, as what I always repeated, again, when Christ said, ah, I will now use a parable to make it clear, where? The parables by Christ always make it even less clear and totally confuse the issue. <laughs> and uh, so it's, I think, totally wrong to read the crucifixion as, you know, this idea of by stupid man, Christ was mockingly claimed God, but he is the true God. No, there is no true God. Christ is a clown. From the standpoint of uh, authority, Christ is a stupid clown. There is no, you see my point, there is no secret true authority. Like, you know, like this Batman logic or whatever, you put off your dress, off and uh, uh, you are a true hero. No, it's, it's, it's really a kind of a, not king, not master, but object A, a saint and a clown, a dirty clown at the same time. Uh, this, along these lines, I would like to pursue the matter. Not, but you, you see, what's my point here? I think that the only way to... What are the two of you traitors there talking, making fun of me? I mean, I am for clown and jokes, but within certain limits, you know, which I post. No, sorry, let me go on. No, so you see my point. 
My point is that I don't believe in this pure respect. I think we, coming from different religious and atheist, whatever backgrounds, we should be able to ask each other this type of questions. Okay, the last line of thought uh, to attack the attack on my own people. Uh, where is in all these forthcoming changes psychoanalysis? Did you notice how the problem with psychoanalysis and politics is the same as the problem with Hegel and politics? In the same way, exactly as with Hegel, we have three readings. We have, with Hegel, we have conservative Hegel, you know, those state Hegelians against liberal state, corporate Hegelians. We have leftist Hegel, not only Marx, but also Bakunin and so on, who dialectic change and so on. And we have in the last 40, 50 years, a disgusting, freaky apparition called uh, liberal Hegelians. I think this is maybe the only true philosophical revolution in Hegel studies in the last 40, 50 years. That uh, a third way, this time, yes, in the Tony Blair sense, is emerging. A liberal Hegel. The sign, now, if you are KGB theoretical policeman, the way you identify the culprit is watch for the word recognition. This is the catchword of liberal Hegelians. They claim that the big, these are basically Pittsburgh, Hegelian, Pippin, and so on and so on. It's a deflated Hegel, Hegel with no ontological pretensions, but the key is that the ultimate aim of Hegelian social thought is mutual recognition and so on and so on. Okay, then we have in uh, Freud, exactly the same. We have conservative Hegelians, for example, Pierre Legendre, but others, sorry, conservative Freudians, even Lacanians, who claim Lacan's message is, today's permissive society is narcissistic as such, dangerous, can lead to psychotic breakdown. What we need is to reassert the authority of the symbolic law, you know the story, and so on and so on. Then we have leftist Lacanians, but unfortunately, the same as with Hegel studies, we have this growing species of the, unfortunately, not excluded third middle term, which is uh, liberal, which is liberal uh, Lacanians. I think that, uh, now, if you allow me for a little bit of, we still have a quarter of an hour, a little bit of speculation. I think that the original culprit here is already Lacan himself, who clearly in his last like 30, 40 years is oscillating between two modes of ethico-political. One is, one is worse than the other, I would have say, <laughs> said like Stalin. One is the a certain ethics of transgression, best developed in his seminar on, uh, in his chapters, in the chapters of Antigone of his seminar seven. The idea of the ethical act as a kind of forcing, a violent act of transgression, which is as such exceptional. Like, you know, you can blindly confront the truth, but you cannot, you cannot endure in it momentary transgression, then you're, then it's the apparent opposite, but which amounts to the same, namely this common sense wisdom that authentic moments are rare, 
you can only survive if you return to the safe domain of semblances. You know, this fake Nietzschean idea that truth is too strong for us. We, in our daily lives, we must live in semblances. And the only thing that psychoanalysis gives us is an awareness that these semblances are ultimately false. So to put it very simply, and I think we should put it simply, it's a simple position of some kind of um, hedonist cynicism. The idea is after you experience the real, in this horrible blinding moment, you have to return to ordinary life, but you are aware that this is just a game, you are playing a social game, don't take it too seriously, and so on, and so on. Now it is, what makes it so interesting is that the late Lacan went even further in, along this liberal path and renounced even this idea of violent transgression. This is why in his last decade or two, his focus is on uh, his uh, definition of final moment of psychoanalysis is no longer traversing the fantasy, but identifying with the symptom. What he means here is something uh, very clear. He says it, I quote you, no complicated phrases. For example, uh, the late Lacan says, uh, one should not push an analysis too far. When the patient thinks he is happy to live, it is enough. You have many of this idea that uh, don't push it to the end. Just find a balance which would be a little bit more, a little bit less painful, and that's make so again. He, Lacan, often says that the goal of analysis is making life a little bit easier. Now, it's nonetheless interesting here how Lacan oscillates between two versions, which again, unfortunately, are for me both worse, each worse than the other. One is, and it's very interesting to hear this from Lacan, who is otherwise so aggressive against Hegel's list der Vernunft, the cunning of reason. It's a kind of a vulgarized uh, Hegelianism. Lacan quotes Matthew 6, 30 to 34, you know, that famous parable where uh, uh, believers worry, what will we eat, what will we drink, and so on and so on. And, and God tells them, just believe in me and all these things will come for free and so on and so on. Lacan positively refers to this, but it's, I noticed, you know, always when Lacan quotes in different years the same passage, you should be attentive to the context, it's usually the opposite reading, no? Uh, there are times when he sounds in his earlier years around ethics seminar, when he reads it in, a, in the way of still clinging to this radical ethics of confronting the truth. Like the idea is confront the truth courageously, don't think about curing yourself, and it will come by itself. Your life will be easier, you will be happier, but don't think about that, you know. Confront the truth, and here Lacan comes close to cunning of reason, it will come by itself life will be better, and so on and so on. But often, 
so again, this reading would be, you know, like take care of the of the, uh, you know, take care of the uh, of the pounds and how is it uh, of the or of the sense and the pounds will take care of themselves. Take care of the truth, risk everything, ignore the consequences, and health will come by itself. Again, take care of the truth, and the healing will take care of itself. Just be consistent, go to the end ethically. And again, as you notice, this is a very naive, I claim, pre-Hegelian idea of cunning of reason. Very strange to get it from Lacan. The idea, here you have, I claim, you see still the big other. Trust God or the big other that somehow you will also feel better, have better sex, whatever you want. No, just go, go for the truth. But then you have the late Lacan, who is again, who goes again, even a step further, and who claims that, uh, no, abandon truth, to put it very simply. Be modest, you suffer here, you suffer there, uh, rearrange a little bit your symptoms, that's all you can do. Now, what Jacqueline Miller does in his last years is brutally, fully developing this line of thought. He, uh, uh, he first, let me give you some, for me at least, horrible, uh, horrible quotes. First, Miller claims that Lacan's basic moment in the last years is that he rejects symbolic truth and go into jouissance as the only real. So Miller's position is, be aware that all symbols, speech, is only a semblance, that the only thing that matters is enjoyment. And Miller openly claimed this, a kind of a hedonist liberalism, where he claims the liberalism of jouissance. The best you can do is found, found to find your own mo mode of, of, uh, of uh, Jouissance. Here, Miller opposes modern science, where he says modern science, precisely, and psychiatry doesn't give you this freedom. It wants to nivelize you to prescribe how people should be free, how they should enjoy, and so on and so on. But again, the idea is that a cynical position that don't count on the others formulate your own idiosyncratic mode of pleasure, sorry, of enjoyment. That's all you can do. Here come some, for me, pretty tasteless quotes. Psychoanalysis, I quote Miller, reveals social ideals in their nature of semblances. And as we add, we can add, of semblances with regard to a real, which is the real of enjoyment. This is the cynical position which resides in saying that enjoyment is the only thing that is true." End of quote. What this means is that a psychoanalyst, quote again, occupies the position of ironist who takes care not to intervene into the political field. The psychoanalyst acts so that semblances remain at their places while making it sure that subjects under his care do not take them for real. One should somehow bring oneself to remain taken in by them, fooled by them. Lacan could say that those who 
are not taken in her, le nom du air. If one doesn't act as if semblances are real, if one doesn't leave the, their efficiency undisturbed, things turn out for the worse. This is all from Miller. Those who think that all the signs of power are mere semblances and rely on the arbitrariness of the discourse of master are bad boys. So, now I say, in the matter of politics, a psychoanalyst does, quote, doesn't propose projects. He cannot propose them. He can only mock the projects of others, which limits the scope of his statements. The ironist has no great design. He waits for the other to speak first and then bring about his fall as fast as possible. Let us say this is a political wisdom, nothing more. Another quote. The axiom of this wisdom is that, quote, one should protect, protect the semblances of power for the good reason that one should be able to continue to enjoy. The point is not to attach oneself to the semblances of the existing power, but to consider them necessary. This defines a cynicism in the mode of Voltaire, which let it be understood that God is our invention, which is necessary to maintain people in a proper decorum. Society is kept together only by semblances, which means there is no society without repression, without identification, and above all, without routine. Routine is essential. The result? is thus a kind of cynical liberal conservatism. In order to retain stability, one has to respect and follow routines established by a choice which is always arbitrary and authoritarian. There is no progressism which holds, but rather a particular kind of hedonism called hedonism of enjoyment. One has to maintain intact the routine of the city, its laws and traditions, and accept that wait, a kind of obscurantism is necessary in order to maintain social order. Literal quote from Miller now. There are questions one shouldn't ask. My God, psychoanalyst saying this. If you turn the social turtle on its back, you will never succeed to turn it back on its paws. Typical conservative wisdom. Uh, this then, uh, unfortunately, is Miller's position today, a kind of liberal conservative hedonist position. We are all freaks of individual fantasies which structure our enjoyment. Society is as such a semblance, a lie, but at the same time, we should be cynical realists, realists, we should admit that without this semblance, which is always ultimately authoritarian, that of a master, there is a catastrophe, society disintegrates, so all you can do is this kind of cynical hedonist wisdom. I know there are appearances, but I will not disturb them too much, it may provoke chaos. Against this cynical hedonist idea of a subject who, while admitting the necessity of symbolic semblances, relates to them with the distance, aware that the only real is that of the bodily jouissance, I claim this would be my first 
point against Miller, I claim that this position, and I'm shocked that Miller doesn't notice it. You see here how Lacan was right when he says the unconscious is political. That is to say that even when we debate about the status of the unconscious, we really, I read it in this very brutal way, we really pass a political judgment. I'm not so antipathetic towards this idea of, you know, build your idiosyncratic enjoyment. But, and Fred Jameson gave me this idea, I claim that Miller is totally wrong to link this to the liberal political order. Jameson, in his reading of that wonderful early Soviet negative utopia, Platonov, Chevengur, claims that precisely the idea of Platonov is that imagine communism as a kind of a strange world where perverts coexist in their space. A madman here, a paranoiac there, somebody hallucinating up there. And I told this to Fred, to Jameson, and he, when I met him, and uh, of course, first I insulted it in my way. My God, did I tell you this? This was wonderful. He introduced me at Duke. And I, you know how I referred to him? I said, my gratitude to the great progressive bourgeois thinker, you know, like, <laughs> he is there. No, but, but he agreed with my example. It's, I know he was privately half a fascist, but do you know the best of Frank, really, Frank Capra, people thought he was a progressive uh, Rooseveltian, but Capra was pro Mussolini. It's good to know Frank Capra, not to have any illusions, but nonetheless. In his nonetheless wonderful film, you can take it with you. You remember the rich man's son, uh, James Stewart, falls in love with a girl who lives in such a big Dickensian mad house. Who lives in that house? You have S.C. Carmichael, a guy who makes candy as a hobby and dreams of being a ballerina. Paul Sycamore, a thinker who manufactures uh, uh, fireworks. Uh, Mr. Depina, an Iceman who comes, uh, who, who, who always speaks uh, to, uh, to, uh, uh, about a certain Paul, it is before, Ed Carmichael, an amateur printer who prints anything that sounds good to him. Uh, then you have Boris Kolenkov, a Russian concerned with world politics for whom everyone stinks. You know, it's, it's typical, like in Dickens, alternate worlds where idiots of all kinds, madmen and so on, live happily together. I think... Against Miller, I would say, no, sorry, I don't allow you this. She doesn't see that this is the communist utopia and that under the pretense of plurality of commodification, uh, capitalism precisely doesn't allow this. The problem with capitalist commodification is precisely that it is too standardizing, which is why I claim Miller is totally wrong. When in his, uh, now I come to two basic Miller's mistakes. First, when he, he started, you maybe even have heard of it, this big movement against standardization in psycho, this subordination of psychoanalysis to state control. Okay, nothing against. But the horror is that he, and he asked me many times, could I give a speech to support his movement and so on and so on. Sorry, but the, horror is that he inscribed this protest movement explicitly into a neoliberal Thatcherite right-wing position. They published even in their press in French translation of some British, I forgot the name, uh, neoliberal economists, 
who claimed that, you know, this typical uh, neoliberal idea, totalitarian social democratic state uh, prete pretends to, wants to know for us what really makes us happy. No, we should give the, to the people the freedom to decide. And his idea is that the totalitarian state psychiatry wants this to determine when you are happy, normal, while the psychoanalyst allows you to, and so on and so on. But I claim this is simply a wrong, what he doesn't see is the inherent contradiction of liberal ideology, that at the same time it appears idiosyncratic to each one his her own enjoyment, but at the same time it's extremely, as it were, normativizing. You know, you must be totally free, but totally free in a way which is strictly prescribed. So again, the problem for me, again, as with Stalinism, the problem for me with neoliberalism is not not enough solidarity and so on and so on. No, not enough idiosyncrasy. The joke is that this uh, uh, multiplicity, you can, I don't know, screw dogs, two women at the same time, whatever you want. Uh, it's beneath it, it's a terrible uniformity. The second point, which is now absolutely crucial, theoretically, and with this I conclude, is that uh, Miller's, it's horrible, this. How, and if I make you understand this, you and myself, because I include myself in the idiots, among the idiots, uh, is crucial. Miller's notion of cynicism and the real of jouissance is totally false in the Lacanian terms. Why? When you have the real and semblances. Lacan always emphasizes that Cynicism is a false position because it doesn't see that the real is not simply behind semblances, but it's only the real of these semblances. So that if you take away the semblance, you lose the real itself. Like, you know, I often quoted it, that old uh, joke quoted by Lacan, Alphonse Allais, the great French satiricist who showed, I don't want to be done, accused of politically correctness to a woman like Udi. Let's say you are a woman now, no? And I saw at him and say, look, that woman, what a shame, beneath her dress, she is totally naked, no? This is the real. The real is the real only. You are only naked beneath your dress. So, in other words, this is for, Lacan isn't cynicist, because the cynic's idea is precisely that semblances, appearances, are only appearances. The whole point of psychoanalysis is to be aware that the real is the real of appearances. The real is not behind appearances. That is to say, uh, uh, to go to much more theoretical level, that uh, the real is only in the appearances. It's a gap, inconsistency of appearances, which is why, again, why we should, you know, Miller, you remember, quote this, le non dup air, those who are not taken in are wrong. He reads it, as you, you remember, I hope, in a cynical way, which is uh, that uh, even if you know the real, you have to be, you have to cynically accept the social spectacle. Pretend as if it's true, although you know it's not true. But Lacan's point of 
le non dup air. It's not this cynical point. You know it's not true, but pretend it's true. Is that those le non dup air are for Lacan cynics who do not see again the weight of appearances. They do not see that the real is in the appearances. That the real is not behind the uh, appearances. Which is why I claim uh, that uh, uh, here we come to politics. If you take Lacan's Lacan notion of the real seriously, then I think you should absolutely drop this kind of cynical hedonist individualism. You should, on the contrary, say that social field is not simply opposed to individual real, in the sense of I have my tiny fantasies and so on and so on, but that the real is inscribed into the social field itself, as its antagonisms, inconsistencies, and so on and so on, which means, point two, that uh, it's like uh, Miller falls here into what I consider uh, the most horrible postmodern skepticism, which is this kind of, how should I call it, uh, clear uh, ontological counter-revolutionary attitude. It goes something like this. Although the world is unjust, but all radical political projects are ultimately logocentric, metaphysical, you think you can uh, realize the idea, and so on and so on. The beauty of this position, of course, is that it's conservative, but it appears, it, it, it apparently allows you to appear more critical than radical critics. You can still say, you communist, you want to change the world, but ha ha ha, you are still logocentric, you think you can introduce an ideal world and so on. Basically, basically enlightened, pragmatic conformism appears the most radical position. Like a true Lacanian answer here, I think, is that, nonetheless, uh, that if you posit the real into the symbolic itself as its inconsistency and so on. And this, I think, is the single greatest achievement of Lacan. How he, for him, again, as I developed innumerable times, the real is not an inaccessible beyond. As Lacan put it, the real is nothing but a deadlock of a symbolic formalization. If you put it in this way, then, of course, the point is not forget about this bullshit to construct an ideal, happy society, but you definitely can radically change the order of appearances. You can radically restructure the order of appearances. And point two, now you will say, but still, what about the point that appearances are only semblances and so on and so on? There are, they are semblances, but you know, Lacan here again, it's a genius if you read him closely. But the real for Lacan is ultimately a semblance on it, a semblance of the real. The real is not again a hard real beyond. The real is the impossibility, the limit of a semblance, and so on and so on. So again, radical changes are possible. And my argument here, a triumphant one, I hope acceptable to all of you would have been a democracy. Okay, we can say like 
I will stop immediately. I got your. Yeah, yeah. No, I. You know, like we can say, like Miller says, oh, something shouldn't be talked about, mystery, and so on and so on. But sorry, nonetheless, you can do what even bourgeois thinkers like Lefort describe as democratic revolution, where you can demystify power, you can proclaim power empty, and like it. You know what I mean? Like, it is some kind of a progress for me. Sorry, you no longer have to substantialize power. You have a radical gap between power and uh, power and its uh, power and the agent of power. So what precisely Miller claims has to remain a secret. In democracy, it's no longer a secret. It's part of the game to claim that everyone, any leader, is just occupying the place of power not having full right to it, and so on and so on. Again, if you desubstantialize the real, then you can see that this idea, this equalizing of all symbolic space works in the same way. No, democracy is a nice example of how the real can be successfully integrated into the symbolic order. The real of this. Gap, uh, gap, impossibility of power, empty place of power, and so on and so on. So again, I think that this is the true choice of psychoanalytic political ethics for me. Either it will get caught into this late capitalist cynical hedonism, where I'm saying then, uh -uh, I'm against death penalty, but for the time being, let's keep it open when you have psychoanalysts like that, no? Or or, again, I'm not preaching for any Marxist revolution here or what. Just for this basic opening. Don't go too fast in this equalization. Oh, all politics is just semblance. Yes, but in a way, all is semblance. But nonetheless, you have semblances which may be semblances, but the real itself reverberates in them. Like, you can have a heroic, pathetic moment of heroic act, sacrifice, which it is a semblance, but my God, it's a semblance with the real in it. I mean, this is, I think, Lacan's whole point that semblances does not mean they are all the same semblances. Absolutely, we should break out of this uh, hedonist, cynical skepticism. I'm sorry if I was too long, but it's my nature. And so, in two days, no. <laughs> So that you will not be disappointed. Uh, I hope you agree. I'm a little bit tired of this political bullshit and I'm bluffing in it and so on. I warn you. What if the next two times we do some real Hegel Lacanian theory? Because I developed ah, why did you say yes? This was a trap. You mean today it was not real? No, okay. No, no. No, yeah. no, no. Seriously. If you agree. Next time, I want to do some new stuff. I further developed it. I think only now I understood it. What Lacan really means by there is no sexual difference, his formulas, and what this means for progressive struggle, I really think only now I understood it. And on Saturday, I propose to go into Hegel, the limits of Hegel again with a detailed new analysis. Because, you know, enemies of the people claim I'm just bluffing, bluffing that big book of Hegel, haha, I will never write it. Fuck you, I have it, 800 pages. <laughs> no, <okay. laughs>